Welcome to a little podcast about coffee price transparency. In a relatively short amount of time, we hope to share some information and start some conversations about the devastatingly low commodity price of coffee, as well as the implications of that low price and its historical flatline. We'll also explore some ways that concerned parties can start to take real action and strive towards some kind of solution or balance. This podcast is independently produced, but features two coffee professionals, Chad Trevick of Recipro Cafe and me, Meister from Cafe Imports. Now I'll let Chad introduce himself more thoroughly in a moment, but first I wanted to explain how we expect this will go. We're gonna use these episodes to, for me, to exercise my training as a journalist and to act as a kind of host for the conversation. I've been working in specialty coffee for almost 20 years and I've also been a professional writer for at least that long. I have experience in asking questions to try and tease out different perspectives and hopefully uncover some degree of truth. Chad and I are basically neighbors in Minneapolis, and he's been generous enough to subject himself to my skepticism about price transparency. We thought others might benefit from eavesdropping on our conversation, so here we are. We're also both open to questions, comments, and even criticism, so we'll share our contact information at the end of every mini-episode. So now, with that out of the way, who are you, Chad, and why are you particularly interested in the current coffee price crisis? And I put current in scare quotes. Thanks for the, the preamble to the conversation here, Meister. I'm excited to have this, and uh, hopefully it is as much a conversation as can be, even though we're sitting here with all of this stuff and recording. And I am a 25-year industry participant. I started as a barista, and I worked my way through the ranks, as you will, at Caribou Coffee until I was their uh, senior director of coffee and tea and held the coffee buyer role there for maybe 15 years. Um, I was at Caribou for 20 years. Uh, At the end of that time, we were buying 25 million pounds of coffee. And my biggest challenge as I left there was to work on converting all of our supply to Rainforest Alliance certified supply. I did that not by abandoning any existing suppliers. I worked with them Uh, really got a cool experience of experiencing personally what it took to certify a farm and what the expenses were, what the protocol that were required were, all the things um, that I think were going to be really important to understand we were asking people to do, I wanted to experience and understand. So I got a, a really cool experience the last little bit of my tenure at Caribou. But the thing that I really got the hardest hit was my price targets and what I was able to pay as a large roaster more often than not, we're limiting that farmer or that community's ability to develop and excel. And that just really came to a head in this experience of working to people on certification because you all of a sudden understood super clearly that the resources were really tight and, oh, the resources are really tight because I've been paying the same or lower price of coffee for the last 10 years. And so at some point... As a coffee buyer, I saw that and really started being unable to stop seeing it, basically. I mean, it became uh, present in every single experience I had at Origin. I was the primary face of the company interacting with producers about the price, the value their coffees represented to us, all of the additional things I was still going to be asking them to do for quality or certification or whatnot. 
Um, and it really just got to be too much um, for me personally. And I started to think about different ways that I could work in the value stream, understanding coffee gets in a person's blood and the people and um, the experience, the connoisseurship and the excitement, all the things that happen around coffee made me want to still be a part of it, but part of it in another way than I guess on the corporate coffee side for the time being. So this current price crisis, which is I think what you asked me about at the beginning, why do I even care, speaks to me in a really personal way because it's something that touched me and I realized in my own uh, supply system years ago is now becoming more a part of, I won't even say mainstream, but let's say industry dialogue and discussion. It's sad to me that it's gotten so bad, mm-hmm. um, so dramatically bad. It's even sadder to me that it's not gotten worse in all my years in coffee. It's really stayed the same, which means it's gotten exponentially worse. Right. But the price has been pretty much the same since the year I was born. So the more people who are talking about price, the more I feel like we have an opportunity to really recognize what's happening here. I know we're going to get into that. So. Oh, that and more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what is it that you're working on now? Tell us a little about Recipro Cafe and also some of the other projects that you're participating in. Because we'll get into that later on, I think, in the show. But it's nice to have a little intro. All right. So I work with a specialty coffee Brazil exporter, um, really knows and understands their own supply chain and their ability to customize different flavor profiles and prioritizes transparency and traceability, which aligns well with my own values. I also do some work with Emory University on the specialty coffee transaction guide, which I know is going to probably be sprinkled in throughout because it is what I do. But then we'll talk about it in a more dedicated way later on. That is a project that seeks to create an alternative series of pricing benchmarks related to both quality and quantity of specialty coffees that we can look at as a specialty coffee market, both sellers and buyers of green coffee, as an alternative to starting negotiations with the seed price. So it's basically right now looking to capture current market behaviors and values being applied to certain quantities and qualities of coffee. And that's going to allow us to ask a bunch of different kinds of questions. So you mentioned a little bit about the transaction guide being a way to find alternative pathways to price discovery. It's come to my attention from having a lot of conversations with folks about the price crisis that there seems to be a lot of confusion about what dictates the cost of coffee or the price of coffee on the sea market. Some people don't even really know what the sea market is. So I was wondering if you could maybe take a few minutes to kind of walk through what the sea market is and how it affects coffee, and we can sort of start just having a conversation from there. Okay. Um, So the sea market is the commodities market against which coffee trades as a futures commodity. The coffee market is like any other futures market, like corn, wheat, soy, milk, butter, fat. A lot of different agricultural and even non-agricultural commodities have uh, a futures market. And that marketplace simply allows a buyer and or a seller of coffee to fix a future price that the market is estimating that product will be worth at that time in the future. All kinds of different considerations, supply and demand and weather forecasts, all those things kind of go into how the market calculates that value. Mm -hmm. And in our coffee market, 
we have oversupply for the short term anyway, globally of coffee. And so that is reflected in a low, many would say unsustainably low price. Then that coffee price, that base C market price, if you will, is used as a basis. And then a number of different producing countries have what are called quality differentials. You have different positive differentials from countries like, let's say, Colombia, Guatemala, Mm -hmm. Costa Rica, where you're paying that base price plus a differential. Right. Historically, that is how these mild coffees were priced against the C market. And what we've done in specialty coffee is added more and more quality differentials and required attributes of the coffee and then having those reflected in the price. Still often, those prices are based on the commodities market as the, the, the very base price of that. Mm-hmm. And that's for a couple of reasons. It allows both the buyer and the seller to use then that futures market and fix that price at the time that they see fit as either the seller or the buyer of that coffee. But those differentials combined with the low C market price are, are, are really doing a poor job of remunerating producers even to cover their costs to be coffee farmers. In in other words, I'm saying we're asking for more than we're willing to pay for. Mm -hmm. And since historically so much of that was traded on the commodities market, it's kind of created this perfect storm. Um, The commodities market itself is not reflecting today the value of coffee as an agricultural product, um, with the exception of basically one coffee-producing origin. Mm The interesting thing about the sea market to me is also that I don't think that specialty coffee is necessarily calling for the dissolution of the commodity market. Because I also think that there are producers who voluntarily sell to the commodity market coffees that are lower grades that they wouldn't be able to achieve specialty prices for. But I think the conversation is more about how do we as specialty divorce ourselves from the sea market as the primary way that we do price discovery and allow that market to serve a totally different function, to serve a completely different segment of the marketplace. Ideally, we would completely do away with it because it's not doing anyone except people who already have money any good. But I think that the argument right now is sort of saying, okay, let's take a look at how we can move away from the C price in order to make specialty coffee more quote unquote sustainable. So you've been a buyer for years, obviously, and now you're working with producers and you also work with other coffee buyers. But can you describe what you've seen change in specialty coffee over the past five or 10 years? It seems like we're talking about this a lot recently, but really the conversation must have already been going on, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this conversation primarily related to the profitability or the economic sustainability of coffee has been going on mostly at origin for a long time. Um, It hasn't been a great concern on the market side because we haven't quite seen our supply as endangered, let's say, as it is uh, perhaps today. One of the biggest differences I notice, and I don't know if this is more because my work is related to being on the origin side and, and working with and for producers, but one of the conversations I hear the most about is from producers saying how difficult and seemingly untenable it is to reach this highfalutin, fancy, high price paying market. They have to variety this or that, process this or that, <laughs> yeah. 
special screen-based African drying bed this, certification that, you know, the kind of, I don't want to say joke, but there's a bit of levity at least that people say, yeah, it used to be so much easier to just sell our coffee. And even when it was easier, we were getting a price that was more closely supporting our livelihoods. Today, we don't get that. And we have to do all of this extra stuff. And it seems like someday some straw is going to break some camel's back. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, when you think of it from a producer's perspective, it's, it's intergenerationally, it becomes a really interesting conversation because a dad or a grandfather or a grandmother will say, you know, back in my day, mm-hmm. all we had to do was this, that, and the other, and we could, you know, we had whatever the idyllic uh, conditions were. And you have the son or daughter who's taking over today and feeling like, I'm trying my best here to even sell a, a couple of coffees and I'm not able to do that above prices that are our cost to produce. So hearing them speak about the ages ago, let's say profitability of coffee production is very, very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's about minimizing losses and mm-hmm. trying to always be more efficient as a producer so that you can take a lower price because that's what seems to be heading their way always. Well, that's also really interesting because when we think about what specialty coffee has come to mean to so many people, it is that obsession with a concept of quality, really, that impacts the way that producers feel obligated to produce their coffee in order to make a price that's, you know, higher than they have been getting historically. At the same time, the amount of work that goes into producing that level of quality is so out of balance with how much of that coffee they're able to produce in the first place, how stable that market is for them, what buyers are asking for year in and year out, uh, what the expectations are. If we hang our hats on price and quality and this rarefied version of quality as being the only kinds of coffees that will achieve that kind of price, then that also doesn't seem to help us address the greater crisis because we're still talking about either producers that already have resources or producers who are able to take risks. And we're kind of missing the boat on a lot of smaller producers who are doing things in traditional ways that have always sort of worked for them and given them a good price. And they have the beautiful stories that we're looking for. And they live in these lush environments and they're not you know, necessarily partaking in a lot of harmful practices with their coffee. So how do we discover price in a way that kind of bridges the gap between this baseline low sea market price and these astronomical conditions that producers are also given in order to earn a price for their 90 points and above coffee, which represents what, 6% of, you know, what they're actually growing every year? Oof. That's a, yeah, all right. Um, Well, first of all, I think that it's really important to acknowledge the disaggregated nature of the coffee supply network, right? So we're talking about producers who globally have less than two hectares of coffee, lots of them remote, very little access to market and, and therefore dependent on someone else to come get that coffee for a price and start introducing it to the market, at which point it can become aggregated, we say, or consolidated with other no traceability coffees that um, you, you, getting that even higher valued price is really difficult in certain scenarios that exist pretty broadly in the coffee supply chain. It isn't as easy as saying, pay more and everyone will get it. 
I think that transparency is, in my mind, one of the things that's going to start to reveal a lot of inefficiencies in the value stream the way that it is today. I think that information, and we'll get into this in our conversation later about transparency and, mm -hmm. and what information and how it's used, um, but information, in my opinion, can only stand to create or instill curiosity about more information, mm -hmm. even if it can be taken out of context and not understood. For us, for example, with the guide to be talking about a, a free on board or an FOB price is more price talk than a lot of people have had about mm -hmm. market behaviors. Um, so whether they understand it or not, it at least starts broadening their understanding and instilling some curiosity about what they need to understand more clearly. Yeah. The trouble there, I think the trouble with any kind of exploration or soul searching that happens is when you stop at some point and your curiosity plateaus or your access to that information plateaus. And that's where we see things like people getting hung up on, on what they see as being the solution to the problem you know, FOB price, that conversation around FOB price or free on board price is really interesting because I see a lot of that happening where people now know what that term sort of means, but there isn't a lot of movement toward the next step, which is putting it into context and, and also digging deeper and saying, okay, if we can find out the FOB price, how do we find out what actually generates that price? Because there's something before FOB. There are many things before FOB. The other thing that I think along that same lines is the conversation that has to do with cost of production. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. I think it's being used in a lot of the research that's being done. And I would love us to talk about that for a second and what you think the value is of knowing the cost of production and, and seeking that information. And then also maybe what its limitations are so that we can avoid that plateau. Yeah. So cost of production is something... It's a, it's a concept that has been the source or the basis of a lot of research trying to gain greater understanding of it. The challenge is that I think in too many instances that information's intended use is to try and identify a minimum price mm -hmm. or, or like how low can we go without further supporting the cycle of poverty, you know, right. whatever, however it's articulated, yeah. there is some perverse logic in using that cost of production number to figure out what the bottom is. Yeah. How long, how low can we go before we actually put coffee into the ground again? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think if you think about cost of production and understanding it in the context of really needing to understand if your own supply partner is in a business positive or a negative situation, Great, fine. But uh, of course, there are different ways to encourage and even require kinds of efficiencies so that they're a, a, a stronger, more resilient supplier. And, and that helps that helps everybody. But this idea that they should increase their productivity or the efficiency or even to some extent their costs in order to do those things. We're just in this really awkward prescriptive territory where instead of empowering people with an appropriate value, let's say, that this thing they produce can represent, we're giving them all of these other ways to get there more cheaply. Mm -hmm. And I just think in our, particularly our, our part of the specialty coffee world, we should be, we're talking about connoisseurship and, and things that really command some attention and generate some excitement and world competitions and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't seem like the supply end should be having to be as concerned with 
pinching pennies. And so it feels uncomfortable to me on the buyer side then to say, well, we need to know and understand what the cost of production is so we know how much we have to pay. It, it, it's, I don't know if I'm making sense, yeah, but you, you we've are. talked about it before. Yeah. yeah. And also that idea that it only really matters to us when we're talking about someone else's cost of production. Very little reflection happens on our own cost of production. And I don't often see people talking about how cafes could be more efficient. If we were talking about how cafes could be more efficient, certainly we wouldn't have cafes that look the way that they do today. We don't hear much about roasters saying, how can I cut my costs and my operational costs? Instead, you see people who buy less than a full container a year traveling to origin to buy coffees that they could very well be focusing that money on the coffees themselves rather than the pomp and circumstance that goes along with buying them. You know, these are just some examples of the things that I feel like we're not very self-reflective as an industry. And so it's interesting to me how much onus is put on how little money a producer can possibly earn in order to stay in business when none of us look at our own businesses that way. I certainly don't look at my own life that way. So that's kind of interesting. That's where the cost of production conversation, that's one of the ways that it, I feel like if we just stop at the concept of cost of production. Yeah, no, you have, you have to contextualize that with other sources totally. of information. So if you look, if you pair that with FOB pricing behavior yes. in a certain country, for example, and you work with uh, whatever the coffee institution in that country is to say, what is an ideal situation or even what are five different situations for cost of production mm-hmm. in your country? You know, they vary regionally by farm size, variety, how technified, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can look at the market behaviors in the transaction guide, for example, to right. understand like, whoa, we're, we're real far off. Instead of, again, coming back to cost of production and using this as sort of a metric to say how well or poorly or, I don't even know how to say that, how, how, how almost poorly are we doing? Right. Why don't we talk about contextualizing information with like living wage or things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a, a great presenter called Michelle Bhattacharya at RICO this year in Boston. And it wasn't great just because it was the panel I moderated, but it was great because <laughs> she introduced to the audience this idea of really galvanizing around a different concept that would facilitate conversations about price. Because, you know, at these gatherings, everybody's concerned about antitrust, anti-competition law. What kind of trouble are we going to get into? Are we colluding and going to make higher prices for consumers? All these things. But in the reality, we have to frame this conversation in a way that allows us to have conversations to uphold other standards. Mm -hmm. And like living wage is one, for example. So similarly, you could take the pricing information in the guide and compare it to what exists already about living wage requirements in in different coffee-producing communities and understand even how far are we from there. Right. Um, And and to me, that starts to be a different kind of conversation. Right. Um, We're not talking about keeping someone in the very basis level of barely break even, never know if they're going to have a crop next year existence, you know? Right. Let's, and, I mean, even the language is so interesting and so capitalistic that we focus on cost of production because productivity is the only thing human beings are worth, you know, in a capitalistic society rather than cost of living. What we should be doing, you know, obviously is working to live, not living to work. And yet the language itself kind of implies this totally opposite concept. 
One other interesting thing I think about the sea market is, and the coffee market in general, and the specialty coffee market is, how would we even know what sustainable coffee prices are when we've never actually really come close to a stable market that reflects that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how would anyone know whether or not we were succeeding? Aside from the fact that coffee producers would stop abandoning their farms or... You know, would it be a quality benchmark? Would it be a quality of life benchmark? Would it be a volume benchmark? How do we even know if we've made a difference or if we're on the right track? I think quality of life is an interesting thing to talk about. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I don't want to forecast or (laughs) create a need for incremental consulting requirements (laughs) about census data and things like that. But I do think that would be interesting to understand on the landscape level in a whole country or a couple pilot countries, for example, um, what happened in, in targeted producing communities as a result right. of initiative A, B, and C. And, and I think that the thing that would be interesting is what happens to education levels yeah. and income and food security stats and health care. You mean, like, wh- what happens if, yeah. if and when this stuff can actually start to represent something that is valued in a way that supports a dignified life? Yeah, like local retention from youth and things like that. Oh, that's a huge one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we hear again and again how average age of a producer is 60 to yeah. 70 plus years. When do we get to start hearing about young people staying or, goodness, having to come back and deal with it? Right. Um, maybe we'll see the numbers change then. That, but, yeah, retention, uh, youth in, in these communities would be an important thing to look at. And the other question about that price and how we can sort of know when we've, I mean, how far off is this fantasy world that I'm imagining where we've achieved a price that's sustainable? It's cute that I'm even considering, you know, but um, how do we even know that the market will absorb that extra cost? And like, that is a question too. How do we know that, that consumers can withstand that price increase? And that obviously goes through, I think, the rest of the conversation. But I think there's a lot of fear from the buying side that says, what if my customers won't buy my coffee anymore because it's too expensive? So just like we don't have a good uh, historical case of when the commodities market's done a good job, we don't have good data that says that when coffee prices go up, consumers stop buying. In mm-hmm. fact, we have data that says they hardly do anything at all. Mm-hmm. Balk at the price a little bit, complain about it, but want their daily brew. And even in my own personal experience working for a relatively large roaster retailer, when we did price increases, the sky didn't fall. Yeah. Uh, And we had to do them when things like dairy, cocoa, sugar, cardboard, labor, rent, when those things went up, guess what? Coffee hardly went up. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Well, wow, that's a really good start. Welcome to our TED Talk, everybody. This is uh, the first episode of a little mini-series, but I think that that's probably enough for right now. We'll come back with a second episode. We'll touch on another area of the price crisis. But in the meantime, if anyone's listening and wants to ask either one of us questions or submit comments or concerns, where can they reach you, Chad? Uh, I'm at chadtrevick at gmail.com so it's c-h-a-d-t-r-e-w-i-c-k at gmail.com awesome and i'm maestro at cafeimports.com so you can hit us both up and we hope to uh, have you around the podcast for the next episode yeah.